Welcome to the Robert J. Morgan Podcast, a podcast dedicated to helping you believe and cherish the Bible and to learn and love Christian history and hymnody. I'm producer Joshua Rowe, introducing your host, Robert J. Morgan. Be sure to visit robertjmorgan.com where you'll find Rob's blog posts, podcast feed, bookstore, free resources, and more. If you've not already, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review. Now here's your host, Robert J. Morgan. Well, hello there, and welcome back to our Bible study podcast. This is a special day because we're beginning a new series of studies and a series of episodes into Psalm 139, and the series is called More Than Wonderful. And today we will look at the first little bit of Psalm 139 as well as an overview. And uh, I hope that you will get your Bibles if you're where you can open your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 139. I'd also like to ask you to share this podcast with other people. I think that it'll be encouraging to you. You could even use it as a basis for small group studies. If you wanted to take four or five weeks and study Psalm 139 together, then some of the insights that we have here will be encouraging to you. And the manuscript that I use, the transcript of these messages are also posted on my uh, website, robertjmorgan.com, as blogs. So you can have them both in this verbal format, this audio format, and also in printed form uh, or printable form from uh, my blog at robertjmorgan.com. Well, I want to begin in this way. Earlier this year, I spent a gray winter's morning reading a biography of a musical genius named Tim Bergling, who performed under the name DJ Avicii. Studying his story was like gazing into a water globe of our generation, and it left me very troubled. Tim was born in Stockholm in 1989 to a businessman and to an actress, and they loved him very much. He grew up in a supportive environment and in an upscale part of the city. As a teenager, Tim drew portraits and wrote poems. He read Science Illustrated. He played video games. He got a guitar and he taught himself to play. He began staying up all night playing war games and making music. When he began battling acne as a teenager, it shredded his self-image. He became obsessed with how he looked and he imagined that he had certain diseases. He was already shy by nature. And he began to find relief from his anxiety and alcohol and drugs. When he was 16, he came across a computer program that allowed him to make music videos. And he obsessed over it for months and months. He neglected his homework and his friends. He neglected sleep and school, but he began doing amazing things with music. He read a Wikipedia article about a place called Avicii, which was a kind of Buddhist hell for the greatest of sinners. Well, because of that, he took the name D.J. Avicii, and he put some of his music under that name out on the web, and he was very soon discovered by a Swedish music manager. Tim was 18 years old, just 18, when his career went meteoric. Overnight, his life went into hyperdrive, and his whole existence became a never-ending global tour. 
Few people have achieved the fame and fortune that Tim found as he entered his 20s. I've watched his videos and concerts, and it seems to me he was just as great a superstar as anybody could be, watching thousands upon thousands of young people sway and sweat and dance to his music wherever he was in the world was impressive. And I like some of his music, although it's not one of the genres that I typically have on my Spotify lists. But all of this proved to be too much for the young man. Every day he was in a different city, every week, sometimes every night he was in a different nation. It drove him to the edge of sanity. His alcohol abuse and drug abuse and the impossible pressures upon him brought sleep deprivation, restlessness, depression, and anxiety. And then at the height of his fame and fortune, he abruptly announced that he was done. He canceled his upcoming concerts and he told Rolling Stone, I needed to figure out my life. The whole thing was about success for the sake of success. For the sake of success, he said, "I wasn't getting any happiness anymore." Well, for a while, Tim lived in his Hollywood mansion, but he drifted from one place to another, from one thing to another, from one girlfriend to another. He read Eastern mysticism, practiced transcendental meditation. He was in rehab. He went on extended tours trying to find ways to be happy. He experimented with exotic drugs and exotic places. He was just a wandering, lost soul. Along the way, he still produced incredible music, and one of his songs was called Super Love, and yet he never found that kind of love for himself. One day, he called a friend and said, I don't feel so good. I'm really confused. The thing is that I want to have a normal life. I want to have a girlfriend and a family, but I also feel like I have to reach enlightenment. I've got to help the world. I need to serve a purpose. And just a few days afterward, the news flashed around the world that the 28-year-old superstar was gone. Death by suicide, alone in Amman. His family released a statement that said, Our beloved Tim was a fragile, artistic soul searching for answers to existential questions. He traveled and worked hard at a pace that led to extreme stress. When he stopped touring, he wanted to find a balance in life and to be able to be happy. He really struggled with thoughts about meaning, life, and happiness. He could now not go on any longer, they said. Well, I'll tell you, this was a tough biography to read, and it left me feeling downcast. Nothing on earth bothers me more than watching someone spiral downward in life, even some public personality that I've never met. And nothing frightens me more than when I see it happening in someone I know or in myself. And this is the pastor's life to watch and to try to intervene when people sometimes spiral downwards. But it worries us a lot. We live in a world that is struggling with, as Tim's family put it, meaning, life, and happiness. Well, let's shift gears. I know of another musician who achieved widespread fame as a teenager and as a young man. He was about the same age, but he had a totally different perspective. He was a superstar in his day too, but he also knew that God Almighty super loved him. Through faith, he formed a relationship with God and studied his word. 
This young man was a genius. He was just as much a musical genius as Tim Bergling. But his creativity excelled at taking the truths he found in Scripture, especially in the book of Deuteronomy, and crafting them into lyrics about the spiritual meaning and purpose of life. His name was David, and one of the famous psalms that has ministered to me since I was 19 years old is Psalm 139, and I love it in the Living Bible. In this series of podcasts, I want to read and study this psalm with you in this series called More Than Wonderful. I want us to discover in this psalm, in this wonderful song, the God who super loves us. Well, let's take a moment to overview this passage. In Psalm 139, David shows how four, not one or two or three, but four of God's infinite attributes intersect with our most personal lives. Theologians use the word attribute to describe the various qualities and characteristics of God, which really boggle our minds when we try to contemplate them. The ultimate subject that we can possibly study is the God who is, and what is he like? The more we know about the Lord, and the more we know him personally, the happier and the healthier we'll be. But a study of the qualities of God is more than an academic pursuit because each of his qualities touch our lives in profound ways. His attributes are higher than the heavens, but they touch the deepest regions of our hearts. The four divine attributes that David explores in Psalm 139 are these. And if you have your Bible open, notice how the four stanzas sort of, well, they consist of six verses each, and they're patterned out very well. Verses 1 through 6 deals with God's omniscience. He knows everything. Verses 7 through 12 talk about his omnipresence. He is everywhere. Verses 13 through 18 talk about his omnipotence. He is all-powerful. And verses 19 through 24 talk about his righteousness. He is just and holy. Now, this is the first time, and will probably be the last time, that I'm going to teach a series of studies based on the text of the Living Bible, as I mentioned a little bit earlier. This version is not an actual translation of the Bible from, Hebrew, from the Hebrew and, and the Greek. It's only a rendering of the English Bible into simplified language, and we call it a paraphrase. It was done by a man named Ken Taylor, who was trying to lead family devotions using the King James Version, the old authorized version. His children were having trouble understanding the old English terms, so Taylor began reading each chapter the night before and putting it into language they could understand. When he published his renditions, Billy Graham promoted them, and the Living Bible found a very wide audience that enjoyed reading it. Few people, frankly, use it today, and no serious expositor would preach from it, but I still have my old copy with its green vinyl cover, and sometimes I go back and read it. And since my days in the dormitory at Columbia International University, I have loved Psalm 139 from the Living Bible and memorized much of it. So with apologies, that will be my text for this series of podcasts, but we'll also pull up some of the standard translations and try to do a thorough study. So let me begin here by reading the first paragraph of Psalm 139 from the Living Bible. 
O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit or stand, when far away you know my every thought. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I am going to say before I even say it. You both proceed and follow me and place your hand of blessing on my head. This is too wonderful, too glorious to believe. Those are verses 1 through 6. Now, notice in verse 1, the writer addresses God using the words, O Lord, or O Yahweh. Some of the old translations say Jehovah. This is the personal name of God as revealed in the Bible, and it has its meaning or its roots in the verb form to be or to exist. In other words, the name Yahweh seems to indicate that God is an eternal, self-existing God. He is the eternal, self-existing God. And this man, David, had a relationship that allowed him to address God by his personal name, Yahweh, Jehovah, or Lord, as it's put in many English translations. Both in the Old and in the New Testament, this kind of relationship is established in only one way, and that is by faith. From our vantage point, knowing what we know from all of the entirety of Scripture, we know that this faith is based on a God who could devise a way for us to know Him. He is high and holy, and we are low and lowly. And so knowing God requires our trusting that He can reach down in forgiveness and pardon and with love and grace and with mercy lift us into a relationship with Himself, which He did by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's very important to follow the true God who is Lord, Yahweh and Jehovah, because in a way that I don't fully understand, we are psychologically programmed to transmogrify into or to be transformed into our perception of God. Tozer said we are drawn by an invisible law of the soul to become like whatever our conception of God is. So ask anyone on earth, what do you think God is like? And if you don't believe in God, what about your own personal idea of whatever is ultimate to you? If they give you an honest answer, You'll see it in their lives, in their values, and in their personalities. Our personalities are inexorably transformed into our conception of what God is like. Take a man who's got his sex, like, say, Jeffrey Epstein. Everything in his life was centered around sex. And you'll notice that he became more and more X-rated and more and more lascivious until it led to his downfall and suicide. Whatever your conception of God is, you'll be becoming that. And so we need to have a correct understanding of the attributes and the qualities of the Lord Jehovah Yahweh, who is the God who was and is and evermore will be. Well, David here begins in the first paragraph by talking about God's omniscience. He says in verse 1, Lord you know everything. That is omniscience. Now, I have pondered and studied this subject all my life, 
But I recently saw the omniscience of God in a new light by listening to a podcast by Dr. William Lane Craig. He began by pointing out that God being God possesses total knowledge of everything that has ever been, that is now, and that ever will be. God knows all things instantly, intuitively, and eternally. And Dr. Craig said, and I want to quote from him now, God knows all past, present, and future tense truths even before the foundations of the world. Before he created the world, God foreknew the motion of every subatomic particle that would occur in the history of the universe. He knew your very thoughts before you think them. He knows our free choices before we make them. He even knew what we would do under different circumstances than the ones that we will be in. So for any true proposition, God knows that proposition, and he does not believe the negation of it. End quote. Now, Dr. Craig went on to point out that God possesses total knowledge also of all contingencies, not just of all propositional truth or all things that are, have been, or will be, but he possesses total knowledge of all contingencies. Now, Dr. Craig didn't use that word contingencies, but that's my understanding of what he was saying. Dr. Craig said, quote, God knows what would happen under different circumstances. He not only knows everything that is happening, everything that has happened and will happen, but he knows what would happen under different circumstances. Now, how do we know this? One key passage involves David himself, who was perhaps thinking of this incident when he wrote Psalm 139. In 1 Samuel 23, David was in the city of Calah, which he had saved from invasion. He had found out that they were going to be invading, the Philistines were going to be invading the city of Calah, and David went down with his men, his motley crew of, of uh, outlaws, and he saved the city from invasion. And then he learned that King Saul was leading the armies of Israel to Calah to capture him. And so David prayed, and he said, Lord, will the people of this city surrender me to Saul? And the Lord said, yes, Saul will come and pressure the city, and the city will give you up. And so David and his men escaped before Saul got there. And when Saul learned that David had fled to the wilderness, he gave up his pursuit. Now, think of the implications of that story. God knew what would happen if. God knows what will happen if. He knows the contingencies. He is omniscient even about contingencies. In other words, let's say that I fall in love with two women at the same time, Molly and Lolly. God knows what would happen if I married Molly. He knows how that would change my life, where we would live, what we would do, what kind of family we would raise, who our descendants would be throughout history, and how history itself might be changed. He also knows all of that should I marry Lolly. Now, I don't intend to marry either one, but God understands the ramifications of that too. God knows every contingency of every detail of every circumstance, and he knows its ramifications forever, even though those things may never actually happen. Now, if that boggles your mind, well, good for you and me. If we have a God who doesn't boggle our minds, he wouldn't be God at all. Now, Dr. Cred continued with a further discussion 
about God's self-knowledge that I'll not take time to repeat or to explain, but then he said something that I'd never considered at all. So let me quote Dr. Craig again. He said, let me go on to say one other thing. Even yet with propositional knowledge and self-knowledge, the excellence of God's knowledge is still not exhausted. What is also important here is the way in which one acquires one's knowledge. Suppose there were two beings, and each one had all propositional knowledge, and each one had appropriate self-knowledge for himself. In other words, suppose you had two beings, and they were both omniscient. They both knew everything. They both knew all propositional truth, and they also had self-knowledge. But suppose the second one acquired his knowledge only because the first being had told him everything that he knew, and the first being had just had this knowledge innately. Clearly, the second being would not be as intellectually excellent as the first being because he didn't know any of these things innately. He knew them only because the other being told him everything that he knew and an innate way. Craig went on to say, in the same way as, as, as we have seen from Scripture, God doesn't learn anything from anybody. Nobody has instructed the Lord or taught him anything. But I would say that God simply knows all truth innately and therefore is maximally excellent intellectually. Craig went on to say, this is again a stunning conclusion. To think God's intellectual excellence outstrips even that which is what it means to be an omniscient being. It does so in that he has this self-knowledge and also in the way that he does not acquire this knowledge from others but simply has it in himself. It gives us insight into how great God's intellectual excellence really is. Finally, I'll one more last quote from William Lane Craig. I remember when I first realized this in studying the doctrine of omniscience, and it just floored me because I never imagined that any person or being could be smarter than omniscient. It seemed to me that omniscient was as high as you could get. Yet when you think about it, God's cognitive excellence, his greatness with respect to his intellectual attributes exceeds even omniscience, which ought to issue in praise and adoration and wonder to the person um, that God is. That's the end of the Craig quote. In other words, if God were to create a computer, say, that could be programmed to know everything that he knew, so that the computer itself possessed total knowledge and was in some sense omniscient, it would still not be an, um, as, omniscient, as, as omniscient as God is, for God doesn't have to be programmed. If God could create another living being that could be omniscient in the sense that that being possessed total knowledge, it still would not be as excellent in its intellectual omniscience as God is because God doesn't have to be taught. He doesn't learn anything. There is nothing new to him. His eternally known all factual knowledge, all personal knowledge, all self-knowledge, and all theoretical and contingent knowledge. He has always known it. He always will. He knows it intuitively, and he knows it eternally. Well, here in Psalm 139, the psalmist makes a very personal application. He said, Lord, you not only know everything about the universe and all of its facts, but you know everything about me. So with this as our broad background, let me read once again these six verses. 
O Lord, you have examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit or stand, when far away you know my every thought. You chart the path ahead of me and tell me where to stop and rest. Every moment you know where I am. You know what I'm going to say before I even say it. You both proceed and follow me and place your hand a blessing on my head. This is too wonderful, too glorious to believe. Well, in the next episode, we'll look at some of these personal statements. But for now, I want to conclude by telling you how valuable this is for our own comfort and peace in life. The fact that you cannot hide anything from God means that you don't have to try to hide anything from Him. He knows you better than a brother and sister, better than a husband or wife would, better than a father or mother. He knows your weaknesses and your strengths. He knows what you're good at and what you're not good at. He knows your future and the path that you should take. And He also knows all of the burdens on your heart. This is ultimate intimacy. The relationship you have with God through Jesus Christ should be the central relationship of your life because no one can ever know you the way He does and no one can ever love you the way He always has and always will. And our greatest goal in life should be to know Him better and better which we do only because Jesus Christ made it possible by crossing the chasm between God and humanity. Imagine how terrible it would be if God existed and knew everything about us, but we could know nothing about Him. Or how terrible would it be if God knew everything about us, but we could not know Him on a personal basis? Well, that's the sad life of Tim Burgling. He was always searching for some kind of super love, but he apparently never took Jesus Christ seriously. God knows everything about us. We can never know everything about him, for he is infinite, but we can know him better and better through Jesus Christ our Lord. Philippians chapter 3, verse 10 says in the Amplified Version, For my determined purpose is that I may know him that I may progressively become more deeply and intimately acquainted with Him, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly. That verse is referring to the Lord Jesus Christ. He knows you intimately, and He wants, to get, and he wants you to get to know Him, you and me, progressively and more deeply and more intimately, perceiving and recognizing and understanding the wonders of His person more strongly and more clearly. We do that when we meet with the Lord regularly every day in prayer and Bible study. That's a wonderful way to cultivate our ongoing relationship with Him. And we do it by trusting Him and obeying Him in all of the circumstances of life. I awoke this very morning with a heavy burden on my heart, a burden that had troubled my mind all night while I had tried to sleep. And so when I woke up, I simply couldn't wait to get into this study of Psalm 139. I went right to my desk and began going over these verses because I needed the encouragement of knowing that God knows far more about my burdens than I do, and that when I don't know what to do, well, I know that He does. I don't have to figure it all out. He is there to share the burden, to show the way, and to lift the load. The wonderful second stanza of the German hymn, Now Thank We All Our God, is the only stanza of a hymn that I know that uses the word perplexed, which is how we often feel. 
O may this bounteous God through all our life be near us, with ever joyful hearts and blessed peace to cheer us, and keep us in his grace, and guide us when perplexed, and free us from all ills in this world and the next. Well, that's the message of Psalm 139. I can sum it all up in this final sentence. Our Lord is too limitless to imagine and too loving to ignore. Well, thank you for joining me. Next time we will complete our study of this first paragraph, verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 139, so be reading it in whatever version you want to, and invite other people to follow along as we study our Lord who is more than wonderful. This is Robert J. Morgan. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is produced by Joshua Rowe and Clearly Media. It is edited by Courtney Warner. It is posted and transcribed and edited for the blog by Sherry Anderson and Luke Tyler, and music is by Elijah Rowe. Until next time, God be with you until we meet again.